you want to write stories your readers will love, there are three things you need to do. Understand storytelling principles, see how other writers have applied those principles, and then use them in your own work. Here on the Story Nerd podcast, our goal is to demystify story theory. We'll help you with the first two steps so that you can get started with the third. I'm Melanie Hill, writer, editor and poet, and I have a passion for spy stories, fairy tales and master detective novels. And I'm Valerie Francis. I'm a writer and literary editor, and I focus on stories by, for, and about women. On today's episode, Valerie pitched When Harry Met Sally so that we can study plot structure. This 1989 film was directed by Rob Rayner from an original screenplay by Nora Ephron. Of course, there will be spoilers because we can't talk about the movie without talking about the movie. And we would love it if you could give our show a rating and review. For Apple Podcast listeners, you can do it right from your phone. Simply go to the show's landing page and scroll to the bottom. It's that simple. All right, Valerie, I think this is pretty straightforward, but what have you got for genre this week? Well, for the global genre, I've got a courtship love story. It's a rom-com. And for the secondary genre, I have a maturation story for Harry. Yep, I've pretty much got the same. I think it's the global is a love courtship, and I think it's a very light, (laughs) I will say, a very light maturation story for, for Harry as well. Right now, I'm really interested to hear what it is that you've got to say about story structure for this one and why it's maybe a little bit different from what we'd normally expect. Well, When Harry Met Sally is, is according to Robert McKee, it's a quasi-anti-plot uh, plot form. And of course, this whole season, I'm studying plot structure primarily as it's articulated in McKee's book, Story, but I'm supplementing with The Story Grid, What Good Editors Know by Sean Coyne, wherever I can. These are the only two resources that I know of that even mention this topic of of plot form or story form or plot structure, whatever you want to call it, let alone discuss it in any depth. Now, there might very well be others. And if you know of any, please reach out to me on Twitter or Instagram and let me know. Uh, You can find me at Valerie underscore Francis. Now, theory books discuss storytelling as it relates to one story form, namely the arc plot structure but they don't seem to be aware that there are any other forms or that there could be any nuance with respect to form. But there are different forms. And once we understand that, once we know what they are and how they work, it's going to make the writing of our stories much clearer, if not easier. So as a quick recap, McKee has something that he calls the story triangle. And what I like about it is that it helps bring some order to our study. It gives us a way to understand a topic that can be, frankly, really overwhelming and confusing. I don't know about anybody else, but when I first started to learn theory, I mean, I despaired. I really did. I thought, I'm a reasonably intelligent woman. Why does none of this make any sense? (laughs) So anywhere that I can find someone that has figured something out already and can explain it to me and bring order to my thought process and my understanding of theory, I'm all about it. And I think that's what McKee is doing with the, um, with his story triangle. So McKee discovered that stories have different shapes depending on how seven key principles are presented. And then he graphically represented these shapes on a triangle. 
Now, I think it's really clever, and I'm sure it took him years of study to figure this all out. So the seven key principles that I just mentioned, these are the ones that I've been talking about all season. But for, here's a recap. So we've got story logic, what I call story logic, and that's you know a clear causality of events or you know randomness. We have to consider the ending of a story and whether it's open or closed. The timeline of the story is the third one, and whether we're, we have a linear timeline or a non-linear timeline. We have to consider the nature of the conflict and whether it's external to the characters or internal. We have to consider the nature of the protagonist. Is he or she active or passive? And then we also have to decide how many protagonists we'll have in our story, whether we just have one or we have many. And of course, the number seven is the reality, and that is um, the, the story reality or the world of the story, and whether the writer is staying consistent with the rules that they set and the world that they create, or whether they're being inconsistent. When we look at ha When Harry Met Sally, and we apply those seven principles, here's what we get. There is a clear causality. We have a closed ending, which is a happily ever after, which is a convention of a romance. Uh, timeline is definitely linear, and they even give us date cards so we know exactly where we are. For example, 1977, or it's four months later, and all that good stuff. The nature of the conflict, it's primarily external. It's a love story. So it's a conflict between Harry and Sally. The protagonist, we do have a single active protagonist, and it's Harry. Even though we've got you know, so many romances have dual point of view, or we see the story from two perspectives, right? The, the two lovers' perspectives. We have Harry and we have Sally. Yes, all that's great. But even in that case, one of the lovers is going to be the primary protagonist. And I think it's Harry for a whole bunch of reasons, primarily because he is the one who takes action. He's the one who initiates everything. He hits on her in the first place when they're driving to New York. Then the next time they meet, he asks her to dinner. The next time they meet, he approaches her in the bookstore. Later, he asks her to a movie. And ultimately, at the end, he's the one to run back to the New Year's Eve party and declare his love for Sally. The reality, it's a consistent reality. It's contemporary New York City, or at least contemporary to when the movie was made. So in story, and this is on page 56, if you want to look it up, McKee says that these seven elements, quote, are not hard and fast. There are unlimited shades and degrees of openness or closedness, passivity or activity, consistent or inconsistent reality, and the like. All storytelling possibilities are distributed inside the story triangle, but very few films are of such purity of form that they settle at its extreme corners. Each side of the triangle is a spectrum of structural choices, and writers slide their stories along these lines, blending or borrowing from each extreme. Okay, we can understand that. That makes sense. So if you picture a triangle, at each of the corners are the three main plot forms, namely arc plot, mini plot, and anti-plot. And the sides of the triangles then represent this spectrum of structural choices. So between arc plot and mini plot, we've got multi-plot. And then between arc plot and anti-plot, we've got 
what McKee is calling, certainly with regard to When Harry Met Sally, quasi-antiplot. So whereas an antiplot story like Wayne's World subverts all or, you know, most of the elements of an arc plot story, the quasi-antiplot story, as the name suggests, only slightly subverts the arc plot form. Are you with me so far? Melanie, have I lost you? You haven't lost me, but to be honest with you, I this name of quasi-antiplot for me is, uh, that doesn't wash with me. I, I find <laughs> I'm not buying that at all. <laughs> but did you want to talk about that a little bit later or go on and, <laughs> and explain the whole quasi-antiplot theory first before we embark on a story about about the label or what it means to be quasi-antiplot. <laughs> yes. Okay. Good idea. I'll, I'll talk more about what it is and then we'll circle back because I'm curious to hear what you have to say. All right. So I chose When Harry Met Sally because McKee offers it as an example of quasi-antiplot. So in story, McKee says this, quote, when, for example, Nora Ephron and Rob Reiner inserted scenes of mockumentary into When Harry Met Sally, his film's overall reality came into question. The documentary-styled interviews of older couples looking back on how they met are in fact delightfully scripted scenes with actors working in a documentary style. These false realities, sandwiched inside an otherwise conventional love story, pushed the film toward the inconsistent reality of anti-structure and self-reflexive satire. So in other words, Nora Ephron and Rob Reiner understood the conventions of an arc plot story, and then they massaged one of them to innovate a genre that's been done, I mean, nearly to death by now. And we've seen this in other stories that we have done. We saw the same thing in The Blair Witch Project. Uh, in terms of novels, Daisy Jones and the Six came to mind. I don't know if you guys have read that book. Pick up the book and read it. It's an interesting experience of reading the novel. It looks funky on the page. It is different. The whole book is like a, a, a rockumentary. The audiobook is excellent. But it's, it's different. It's very different. So I'm wondering if it might also be applicable to stories that move around in time, how, would, how does plot form apply to stories that use uh, epistolary devices, for example? And of course, this would all depend on the artistic interpretation and the artistic presentation of the story. But if we start to move away from a strict arc plot story, like we saw in Men in Black and we've seen in other movies so far this season, if we move away from that and sort of play with one of those seven elements that, uh, that I mentioned a few minutes ago, what can we do to make the story a little more interesting? So Nora Ephron and Rob Reiner decided to use these little scenes of other couples talking about their love story and how long they've been together and all that kind of stuff. And of course, the last scene is Harry and Sally. They've only just gotten married. So presumably they will stay together much like these older couples that we have just seen. I thought it added an interesting dimension, but it's not a straight arc plot structure. 
It's not. In terms of um, this, the self-reflexive satire that McKee uses, I like that phrase, to be honest. It, it is, in my opinion, it does show that the movie is kind of self-aware and I was going to say poking fun at, uh, but I, I don't like that phrase. But it's sort of a little tongue-in-cheek uh, for romance movies or stories. And especially when you know that Nora Ephron is the pen behind this, it really makes a lot of sense. It's very Nora Ephron. It's very Rob Reiner. In fact, Harry is Rob Reiner. <laughs> she she just stole whole parts of Rob Reiner's personality and put them into Harry. And Billy Crystal and Rob Reiner are very good friends. And so Billy Crystal borrowed heavily from Rob Reiner for this role, which I think is really interesting. Okay. So I personally, I'm curious to know how many other iterations of this are out there in films or novels or possibly even plays. So as we move forward, I, for one, am going to be keeping an eye out for this to see where authors have taken an arc plot story that we have seen a million times and they've subverted maybe just one or maybe two elements to add a different dimension or to shake it up a little or make it a little more interesting or fresh or new or innovative. Because I want to know how those subversions either add to my enjoyment of a story as a consumer or detract from my enjoyment of the story. And the, the course, the whole key here is that we first have to understand exactly what an arc plot story is. And we have to be able to write a really solid arc plot story before we go monkeying around with it all. The more we understand how stories work, the better we are able to add something fresh. And that's the goal, right? But if we don't know what we're doing, chances are we will end up weakening our stories rather than enhancing them. All right, Melanie, lay it on me. You're not cool with the quasi-anti-plot, so tell me, tell me about it. No, so I, so well, one of the things that in watching this movie and then doing in, and listening to you speaking just then, um, I would have thought that being the Ricardos is far more a stronger example of a quasi-anti-plot than when Harry met Sally. Now, I know story, the book was written before that movie came out, but that to me makes more sense and I can see when you're talking and you raise those points about sliding along the scale towards, you know, anti-plot, that type of story to me is a really potentially good example of similar devices but even more devices, right? So the black and white flashbacks and those sorts of things, I, you know, that I went, oh, maybe that's a better example for me to understand what this plot structure is all about. But with Harry Met, when Harry met Sally, I just thought the, you know, the mockumentary style inserts. They're just meet cute scenes, right? And that is just that what that just reinforces the idea that we are watching Harry and Sally's meet cute and their and their love story in the first instance and how they got together and why it took so long. So I didn't see it so much as a I can see why it's innovative because we probably had not seen it 
before in by the time that went in the time that movie came out but I didn't see it as such a big diversion away from an arc plot in fact I thought it it did make it interesting but it supported the arc plot structure more than took away from it so that's what I was thinking this week and I and that's why I didn't buy into um, when I was reading story uh, a little bit about anti-quasi plot, that's why it didn't make sense for me a great deal. Although I, I could see the innovation, structurally it was just a way to break up the movie and to add a slightly different interest. And, and you know, who doesn't love a good meet-cute story, right? <laughs> you, you know, there's like it, you could get couples talking for quite a long time about, well, how did you two get together? And then, you know, you can have good dinner time conversations around that. So that's it felt very familiar to me and I didn't think it was such a breakaway from an arc plot structure. Well, the idea is that there's a sliding scale. So Anywhere along that scale, if you've got antiplot on one end of the scale and arc plot on the other end of the scale, a movie could be anywhere along that line. So it could very well be quite close to arc plot, or it could be much closer to antiplot, or it could be right somewhere in the middle. The Being the Ricardos example is a really good one. Now I want to go back and watch that movie again. Um, because it feels like a long time ago that we watched it, just to refresh my memory. But if you think about that movie and you think about Aaron Sorkin, he's a writer who really knows what he's doing and he's trying to challenge himself and test himself and try something new to keep it interesting for him. So by taking one or more of these elements and just playing around with it to just to see what happens, that's kind of the point, right? And that makes sense now for me as well with Aaron Sorkin, right, and why he did what he did with being the Ricardos because I remember I wasn't as enamoured with that <laughs> as I thought I was going to be. And But now when I look at it through this lens of quasi-anti-plot, it just brings a whole different dimension to an understanding the story that, to be honest, I wish I'd had at the time um, so it's great to go and deep dive into this and understand that triangle of McKees and it, it helps me understand what those writers are trying to do. Like they're good at the they're good at art plot, that's not interesting anymore. So they're moving into those different areas of mini plot and anti-plot to keep them to to stretch themselves, to to stretch the art form that they love. And I can see that now. And at the time I didn't, but it's a really good point that you made about Aaron Sorkin. So now in saying all of that, um, how did it help you with your understanding of resonance this week? Oh, well, that's actually, cause when I first watched it this week, and again, I'm feeling like, you know, the, the most numpty movie watcher in the world. I have never seen when Harry met Sally. <laughs> in full. Of course, I've seen all the, you know, the funny bits, I suppose, or the interesting bits of the movie before now. But I had never sat down and watched it in full. And so it was, um, I went in really, I don't know, I didn't have high expectations. (laughs) 
but I came away having better. I actually found it a better film than I than I thought I was going to find it, only because I'd seen the funny bits. But what it gave me was far more context into um, into the movie. And you know, I like Rob Reiner films overall, and and Efron is a great writer. You know, whether it's in movie form or written form, she's very good. So you know, it's not surprising that I enjoyed the movie for for what it was. But before I dive into the movie or how Resonance worked in this movie, I wanted to share some of the names of the books in the bookshop scene and I because it's just something that this attention to detail is something that I really love and I think, well, we're not doing, I'm not doing subtext. There is a lot of subtext in here and there's also a little bit of Resonance. So I'm just going to read out the names of the books, right, because I found it fascinating. So on the table where Sally is looking at the books, the book's titles were Making Life Right When It Feels All Wrong, I Love You, Let's Work It Out, Cold Feet, Love Shock, If I'm So Wonderful, dot, 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 (laughs) Women, Men Love, Women, Men Leave, and Crisis, and then finally The Mythic Tarot. (laughs) And in the bookcase where Harry is hiding in the books, in the book section, so he's hiding behind the personal personal growth shelves, we've got How Men Feel and Men Who Can't Love, Sex and Morality, and finally How to Stubbornly Refuse to Make Yourself Miserable About Anything. Yes, anything. And it's it's so clever to have these books out there and it's so clever to have those characters looking at those books, whether they're intending to buy them or not. Um, and just out of interest, uh, Sally is actually reading one of the books that she was looking at in that bookshop in a later scene, whereas um, Harry actually went and bought a Robert Ludlum book. So he's reading an action man story. <laughs> but it was a really interesting thing. Now, one of the things that I did want to focus on this week with Resonance was the, the music in this movie because I think it is a perfect example of how Resonance work and it is an example of how we can apply the theory of Resonance in our own writing. So a, a quick reminder though that Resonance is like a refrain in music and a refrain is something that repeats itself throughout a song. And each time it's repeated, the message of the refrain becomes stronger and more significant. Now, the song, It Had To Be You, is the song that me and my husband danced to as our wedding waltz at our our wedding, but it was sung by Michael Buble, who I really loved at the time. And I still do. I still do. (laughs) However, me and my friends when we were growing up, we all loved Harry Connick Jr. and we played his albums over and over again. Now, I also love the use of the Gershwin songs and the Irving Berlin songs. So the music in this movie kept me engaged so much. And each of the songs, while different, do centre around love and relationships. Now, there are various versions of some tunes throughout the movie, but like I said, the most prominent one was It Had To Be You. And this starts the movie and finishes the movie. 
and it's such a recognisable tune and it pretty much sets up the ending as the beginning credits start rolling. Now, with books, similar things are presented to readers that are, you know, I suppose similar to a to an opening musical refrain. Now, just look at the covers of your favourite types of books. Check out the fonts and the blurbs. These visual symbols draw on the power of resonance and you can almost tell if a book is going to be for you or not by looking at certain features of the cover. Now, I'm not saying that a cover reveals or conveys the type of story perfectly, but it is meant to. Covers hook a reader in the first instance and now after you've opened it or seen the cover, the story needs to meet the expectations that have been set. In the case of When Harry Met Sally, the title and the music have already set up the love story but there is a consistent repeat of the same scenes over and over again in this film but all with variations. Now, this is extremely powerful and I think it is key to the movie When Harry Met Sally's success. So each major sequence of the story starts with the interview of a couple who explain their meet-cute story. Then we go on a journey with Harry and Sally right from their meet-cute and then up to their own interview at the end of the film. So each sequence then travels over time. The pattern is set up in the first two sequences. Now, Harry and Sally meet up. They talk. Then one of them says something ridiculous or irritating. One rebuts. And then they probably go out to an eatery. But they always generally reaffirm their status as friends or not interested. (laughs) And there are variations. But again, this is a refrain that continues throughout the movie. So we can do exactly the same thing in our writing. So the example that Dave Farland uses in his book, Drawing on the Power of Resonance in Writing, is The Lord of the Rings. Now, Farland puts forward a compelling case that Tolkien drew from a number of stories to create The Lord of the Rings. But the one that he points out, which is the primary inspiration, is a classic German opera called Der Rings des Nilbillen. And Der Rings is about a magical ring that allows the wearer to rule the world. And there are also other plot similarities that I, I won't go into on the podcast. Now, it would be easy to dismiss The Lord of the Rings as an interpretation of this German opera. But there are many events from Tolkien's life that he's drawn on to create a new story. Now, Tolkien, when he wrote it, had also been through the First World War as an infantryman. And there are many different armies in The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings, and they are very much like the different corps and the different allied countries who joined both sides of the Great War. Now, when Tolkien was a young boy, he was also bitten by a large baboon spider. Now, baboon spiders are venomous and their bites are extremely painful. Now, Tolkien didn't remember the event, but it's probably remained in his subconscious 
and came out in The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings via She-Lob and also the giant spiders in Mirkwood. Now, there are many other examples of Tolkien's life experiences in all of his works, just like there are many of Nora Ephraim's and Rob Rayner's in life experiences in When Harry Met Sally. Now, in a 2019 BBC article, Nicholas Barber wrote, and I quote, The idea occurred to Rayner because his first marriage to actor-director Penny Marshall had ended and he had returned reluctantly to bachelor life. He and his friend, Andrew Scheinman, told Ephron all about their experiences. Ephron added the female perspective and she turned their confessional conversations into a screenplay, end quote. So it's probably also worth noting that while Ephron was, was growing up, that she wanted to move to New York and pursue journalism. Now, Sally moves to New York to pursue a career in journalism too. And that's not to say that Sally is exactly Nora Ephron, but they share a, a lot of common experiences and these resonate through the movie. Now, those experiences are about being single and all the other relationship issues Harry and Sally put in the way of their romantic relationship. So they are also very common experiences to have and that is why it is considered a romantic classic. Now there is also a resonance in Nora Ephron's movies. She writes about relationships but not always in a sentimental way. So for example, there's this movie and there's also Heartburn. Sometimes her movies are more sentimental like Sleepless in Seattle and You've Got Mail. But her dialogue also has a certain cadence and it's usually that of a New Yorker. And her humour is often self-effacing and I think ex what I would consider existential at times. And what I mean by this is that it's not based on everyday stuff. It's mainly about the meaning of things and examining the contradictory nature of what is said and in most cases how stupid it is or how ironic or contradictory. Now, Harry's character is probably a perfect example of that style. Another surprising way Nora Ephron's movies have created resonance in general community is via the clothes her female characters wear. So if you didn't know, and I didn't know, <laughs> there are a number of websites based on how to dress like a Nora Ephron character. Hmm. So, which is actually interesting because I don't mind the way Sally dresses in this movie, but anyway. <laughs> um, <clears throat> now, there's one aspect of resonance that I haven't really touched on this season and, it's, and it sits in with names. Now, when Harry met Sally, it's not Tolkien, but it, she does use or the writers have used symbolic names and they are very descriptive. So... Harry and Sally are the only main characters with first names and surnames. She is Sally Albright and he is Harry Burns. Now, Sally is literally her surname. We all know and may partially resemble <laughs> the good girl who's academic, follows the rules and plans out her life. 
Harry also resembles his name. He burns commonly held beliefs and expectations to the ground, probably because he's a generally pessimistic person. Now, I've mentioned this before, but I'm going to examine this a little bit more. The events in when Harry met Sally, as I mentioned, are often repeated, but they are not the same. So these events resonate within the story And I think this is a really key point and we should start looking out for the repeats in stories, especially when it comes to story events. Now, Harry and Sally go through a series of meeting, interacting and agreeing in in a verbal and nonverbal way not to get romantically involved. There are about five or so of these sequences and each one is longer than the previous one. Now, they are punctuated, like I mentioned, with those meet-cute stories of the older couple. But the other thing that's interesting to note that Harry and Sally, after their initial dislike of each other, become closer and closer to each other. Their respective breakdowns over their past relationships are the catalyst to their eventual romantic relationship. And we see how the closeness is built over each sequence because of the familiar but different events within them. The tension is built by the closeness we see growing, but their relationship is also contrasted by that of Jess and Marie's. Jess and Marie meet and move in together, then get married in a very short amount of time compared to Harry and Sally. Now, Tolkien uses the same technique in The Lord of the Rings. Frodo always has to leave a safe place and Aragorn has to continually step into leadership roles after years of being Strider and roaming around by himself. The ending for both of these characters is foretold in the repetition of the same event throughout the book. Frodo will leave Middle-earth with all the other ring bearers to go to the Undying Lands and Aragorn must step into, or he must step up and become the king of men in the new age. In Harry Met Sally, the title pretty much tells us everything about this movie. It's a variation of when boy meets girl, and we know some sort of romance will follow. When Harry tells Sally that he loves her at the end of the movie, he has to run to meet her with the hope that she'll match his confession of love. And this is set up in the first scene when they meet each other and nothing happens. We can see how resonance is used at many levels to tell a story that is familiar but different. And we can see how, and I would argue we should, use our own life experience to evolve the types of stories that we love. Anyway, Valerie, what is the takeaway for this week? What I want you to do is think about the stories that you love to read. What are the books that you go back to over and over? Think about the form of their plot. This gives you an idea of what you like best as a reader. And if you write in that same form, you may very well enjoy the writing process a little better because you'll have an innate sense of how that form works, the rhythm of that form. So that's what I want you to do this week. Think about the books that you read a lot and see if you can identify what form the plot is. Is it an arc plot, multi-plot, mini-plot, anti-plot, or quasi-anti-plot? 
Well, that wraps it up for this week. Join us again next week when we discuss The Great Gatsby. To support the show, please leave us a rating and review and tell your writer friends about us. For access to writing templates and worksheets and more than 70 hours of training, subscribe to Valerie's Inner Circle by visiting valeriefrancis.ca slash inner circle and follow her on Twitter and Instagram at Valerie underscore Francis. If you'd like to find out about books to help you read like a writer, visit me on Facebook and Instagram under Melanie Hill Author or find out more about me at melaniehill.com.au. And remember, story theory doesn't have to be difficult. It's a tool to help you write more, not less. So take it one step at a time and have fun. Mm-hmm.